0: Love Thy Neighborhood. Okay.
1: Oh, cool. oh, definitely <laughs> neighborhood. Oh, yeah. Discipleship
0: and Missions. Mission. For, for modern, modern Times.
1: If I'm not practicing patience with a discipline towards joy or thanksgiving, I only see God as a person who is... Expecting things from me, but not actually giving me good
2: gifts. This is a show about self-discovery,
1: about understanding
2: ourselves, about looking into the mirror to see the good, the bad, and the unknown of who we are.
0: This is about how we relate to God
2: and everyone else.
1: From Love That Neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the INIACast.
0: Welcome to the Enneacast. I'm Jesse Eubanks. And I'm Lindsay Lewis. In every episode, we walk you through the Enneagram and we help you build better relationships. And today we are coming to type one, commonly known as the reformer. And a quick note, I'm in my office, uh, not in the studio today. And so if you hear cars driving by, that's why. And Lindsay is in a closet at her house. (laughs) So if she sounds weird, it's because she has a coat over her head while she's talking. (laughs) (laughs) So we are continuing our series on how our personality impacts our relationship with God and our approach to faith.
2: Yes, and this is the last time, dear listeners, that you will get to hear me quote this Richard Ward quote. He says, how we relate to God always reveals how we relate to people, and how we relate to people is an almost infallible indicator of how we relate to God and let God relate to us. So what we're saying is how we relate is how we relate across the board. You have a relational style and you love it. You're addicted to it. You think it's so useful. It's the best way. And you use it with the people in your life. And more than likely, you're also using it in your relationship with God. Yep. So we're going to explore how this shows up for type one, the reformer. So yeah, so today's
0: content is building on our 101 content from season one of the show. So make sure that you do have a basic understanding of the Enneagram before you dive in any further. Otherwise, you're going to feel a little lost. So where are we going to start?
2: So we're going to start by looking at three things. First, we're going to look at how their personality influences their relationship with God. Second, how their lens influences their view of God. And third, how God heals people with this Enneagram type.
0: So let's first explore how their personality influences their relationship with God. Lindsay, give our listeners an idea of what this looks
2: like when it's healthy. Right. When I think of the one, I think of somebody who is living for that higher purpose, And so when they're healthy and they're in tune with God and the Holy Spirit, um, they are in a place to understand that their goodness, their right standing only comes from God. And that enables them to ease up a little bit on judging themselves. You know, they can turn down that critical voice um, in order to hear God's love and God's heart for themselves and for others. And when they get to that place, there's really nothing that can stop them from seeking right action in the pursuit of justice or making the wrong things in the world right again. But knowing that they can rest, that God is actually the judge, so they don't need to come at those things with anger, that they are working alongside God and his purposes, and that he is the one who perfectly completes the work. And so they can also rest. You know, they don't have to worry about the outcomes quite so much.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting space, like, when, when they're healthy because it's this strange tension between really deep convictions and patience In mm-hmm. this sense in which, like, they've got their convictions, but they're not, th- the anger is just not quite as acute. The other thing I noticed, too, is that there can even be a sense where, Everything's not quite so black and white, you know, when they're really healthy. It's this ability to kind of go, you know, there are some things that we know for certain, and there are some things that we just don't know. There are some things that are just veiled in mystery. I, in particular, I think about there's a type one that's at my church, and he's just been on this really lovely journey the last few years and has really just softened. Like, there's a sense in which, Mm -hmm. like, it's not all fire hose all the time, or it's not all angst. It's like, there's a real sort of soft tenderness and a graciousness to him, you know, just as he's received that from God. Yeah. And I think too, like the thing I've noticed is that as, as one's really grow and become more healthy, like they're able to rest more, you know, that ability to kind of go, I don't have to go, go, go all the time. The weight of the world's not on my shoulders. I can trust God. He's the one that holds everything together. I'm just a human being. Yeah. I'm just going to rest. And then too, the, I think the other thing is the ability just to, to label their own personal desires and to s- not just see those desires always as wicked and horrible, but as, hey, I've got these desires. I've got these things. And some of them are a little twisted, but some of them are great. And I'm going to be honest yeah. about those things and bring those things to God.
2: Yeah, I like that.
0: Okay, so that is the good news. That's the good side. I think we also need to be honest. We need to take a look at the fact that there is going to be a negative side. So, how is it that their personality is negatively influencing their faith?
2: Right. We have been um, referring back to Lisa Vischer's quote where she said, Psychology informs our theology. In other words, our personality is often leading us to create certain theological emphases which result in a slanted rule of life so we're relating to god through a skewed approach that takes a good thing you know a good thing like helping others or being obedient or being successful or powerful something that is part of who god is but we make it the ultimate thing at the expense of other good things and also at the expense of other people you know, that we're disqualifying the gifts that they have been given because they fall outside of whatever we're emphasizing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And for the one, you know, they have this tendency to relate to God sort of around obedience, like their experience Mm -hmm. of God tends to revolve, revolve around obedience. So what does this overemphasis on obedience look like you know, it's going to be a lot of oughts and shoulds. Uh, you know, we say they're going to should themselves to death. Like uh, <laughs> they're going to should all over themselves because there's this sense of I should do this. I should do this. You should do this. We ought to be doing this. And the one that's really tricky for the one is that that, that inner critic really loves to pick up Bible verses and yeah. quote them back at the one. But I always say like, they might have the words of god but it doesn't have the voice of your daddy like it's that Mm. sense in which the way in which the scripture is being articulated back to them uh is not is not with the voice and the kindness of god the other thing too is that um love accidentally becomes conditional so they only become accepting of other people so long as those people are in full compliance so they they can turn into sin hunters you know, I think about like if you take this all the way to the end, you take this train to the end of the station and you sort of end up with like the Puritans at like the Salem witch trials. You know, it's that sense mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. we are going to be people of purity and we are going to root out all wickedness.
2: Yeah. So as someone who has high, high, high one, I think about my earlier days of faith, you know, yeah. those like teen years where I was I felt really on fire for the Lord. And I was obsessed with the book of James, obviously a book of the Bible. It's a great book, but you know, I could have tattooed on my body, you know, faith without works is dead. Like obviously I have to do, 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 and keep doing more. Or maybe I don't have any faith at all. They're not hearing that gentle, loving voice that we so often see Jesus taking with sinners. You know, I think of the woman at the well, or, you know, when they were trying to cast stones at the sinful woman and just how gentle Jesus often was and how much he told people, you know, take my yoke upon you because my burden is light. That's not always in an unhealthy space where the one is. The burden is becoming heavier and heavier and heavier because it's it's so tied in with You know, kind of that goat and sheep mentality of like, well, if I'm not doing enough for God, then maybe I'm not a sheep. You know, maybe I'll be cast out. Maybe my faith isn't real instead of trusting that God's done it and he's doing it and that you can rest in who he is.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've got plenty of one myself you know recently i was reflecting on like why is it that at times i i want to be really heavy-handed in my criticism instead of being understanding and gracious and empathetic mm-hmm. at the end of the day it's a real sense of like because those things won't get people to change if i'm really forthright with what I think and why I think it and how it should be done. That's what's going to change me. And that's what's going to change others. Like grace often feels too soft. It feels too Mm. slow. And risky, risky. if you don't mind me interjecting. Yeah, right, right. And so there's a sense in which like the promise of, you know, the unhealthy side of the one, that promise of like, if we just push, if we just criticize more, if we just drive ourselves, then mm. then finally we will get that transformation and then we can finally rest but of course that is a lie and that is not how it works yeah. and that's not God's process
2: yeah so that's how this type relates to God but one of the main reasons we relate to God incorrectly is because we see him incorrectly Tell us, how does the lens of this personality type distort the way they see God? Yeah. So how
0: do they tend to see God? They see him as a judge. You know, they Mm. mistake the Holy Spirit who is inside of them and speaking to them. They mistake the Holy Spirit for their own inner critic. They think that's the same thing. So Mm. God is the one who is the pusher of all of these oughts and shoulds and God will only be pleased with them, only accepting of them, only loving of them, only delighting of them, so long as they're obedient, so long as they live up to the standard. And they end up also just having a lot of honestly suppressed anger toward God because they are frustrated with how much he demands. They're frustrated with the fact that there's still injustice in the world. They're frustrated with him because he's not moving fast enough because... They've made a bunch of sacrifices and obeyed him, and he still is not uh, upholding his end of the deal in the way that they think Mm. is best. And so they can have a very sort of dutiful but angst-ridden relationship with God.
2: Right. But we love to point out the true image of God that ones represent in the world that God is the full image of, and that is his goodness, that God is pure goodness, that Jesus was completely without sin. And he conveys that onto us as his brothers and sisters, that we are given that full status, full recognition of Jesus's perfection. And that's it's really amazing. Think about it, that God has declared, you know, Psalms 139, my favorite Enneagram (laughs) chapter Mm of the Bible. mm -hmm. God has already declared that you were wonderfully made. You know, he is not surprised by the fact that you are a sinner because he knows that you are dust, you know, and he is so loving that he even accepts your anger, that he also has anger about the injustices of the world and that he is the one who will bring true justice and he will bring it with complete righteousness. Yeah. His justice isn't tainted with any sin. Yeah. And then lastly, that God is a God of delight that he loves to give good gifts to his children. Even the ones, you know, that ones you can have your heart's desire. Oftentimes, you know, that God says, I made you with these desires, like use your gifts, use the things that bring you joy to glorify me. Because again, his burden is light.
0: Yeah, there's that wonderful quote from Brendan Manning, God loves you as you are and not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. That is a message that the ones need to hear, like God's love is not conditional. God's love is unconditional. Okay, so for type ones, we've looked at how personality influences their relationship with God and how their lens influences their view of God. So we're left with this final question of how God helps heal people with this type.
2: So, Jesse, as you love to say, he doesn't heal us with good advice. He heals us with good news. So what is the good news for the type one?
0: Yeah. I mean, the good news is this, is that he heals your guilt with his forgiveness. He looks at you and he says, you are good just as you are. You are good Good. in the fact that you're a part of creation. And he said it is good when he created And you're also good because he has truly replaced your sin and your brokenness with the fullness of who Christ is. When he looks at you, he looks at you with the great affection that he has for his own son. He has that for you. Mm. And he heals your shame with his delight, and he heals your fear with his presence. In this good news, it leads to transformation. So after receiving this good news, you are invited to respond. And here's how you can do that as a disciple of Jesus, practice patience. Tolerate imperfections and trust that everything is going to work out in the end. God will finish whatever he begins.
2: Mm. Beatrice Justna and a few other Enneagram teachers, one of the virtues they suggest that I think goes along great with this is the word serenity, that the opposite of this anger and angst is serenity. And I was thinking about how that goes with patience that honestly you have to have kind of the patience first you have to be able to tolerate imperfections in order to get to that state of serenity and she calls that a patient acceptance and deep peace with self and surroundings and so you just picture the one is you know they're doing their work they're resting when they need rest and they're accepting it's always going to be the not yet. Yeah. So uh, we have a few last tips for investing in your relationship with God from A.J. Cheryl's book, The Enneagram for Spiritual Formation. And he talks about spiritual disciplines for each type. So, first of all, the downstream discipline, which is the discipline that's a little easier for most ones to get behind, is going to be Justice, you know, seeking justice, working with people who are doing justice work, and stewardship or acts of service. So they are great at, you know, getting things done, signing up to work. They're going to help people who are in need. They're great at those action responses. The upstream
0: discipline, the one that's really going to help you uh, have a broader view of God and a broader experience of God, is going to be journaling and rest Journaling from the perspective of getting honest with yourself. Get all the stuff that's, you know, rattling around inside, get it out and begin to do the work of acknowledging your true feelings about things and trusting that God can handle it. I mean, have you read the Psalms? You know, David, David, was he brought it, you know, the things that he was feeling. And then the other part of that is rest. And in particular, two aspects of rest. The first one is getting out and getting into nature. It's really helpful and healthy for the one just to see the interconnectedness of nature and that even in a very broken world, God is still clearly holding all things together. You don't have to. And then the other aspect is play. So as part of your rest, play. But here's a trick. Don't play things where there's winners and losers. Don't play things where there's rights and wrongs. Play things where it's just fun for fun's sake um, so that you can begin to tap into joy and celebration and just enjoying life. So... That is our teaching for Type 1, and we would love to be able to talk with a guest, to be able to explore this more deeply. So we have a wonderful guest joining us today. Our guest is Dr. Todd Ingstrom. Todd is the Executive Pastor of Ministry Strategies at the Austin Stone Community Church in Austin, Texas. He directs the efforts of the Austin Stone Institute, the Austin Stone Counseling Center for the city, and for the nation's to serve their six congregations and mobilize disciples and leaders in the mission. His passion is to train, resource, and deploy church leaders to glorify God wherever they are. Todd regularly speaks, writes, and consults with churches on the topics of missional communities and organizational leadership. At home, he is husband to Olivia, father to five kids, and seeks to be a faithful missionary in his neighborhood. And he is a one on the Enneagram. Welcome to the show, Todd.
1: Super glad to be here. So it's always interesting to hear your bio read and realize, man, I need to work on that. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you do a lot of things. That's, that's what I read. That You sound like a very busy person.
1: Uh, I would probably be described in that way, and it's probably associated with my Enneagram type. So.
0: <laughs> hey, the, the the first step uh, towards healing is uh, self-acceptance and, uh, and self-awareness. Um, uh, hey, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to know about the Enneagram? What initial takeaways were there for you when you first started to explore it?
1: You know, I think my first sort of introduction to the Enneagram through an author was actually David Benner um, in the book, The Gift of Being Yourself.
0: That is a great book.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a fantastic read. Uh, one of my friends from uh, Reno, Nevada actually recommended it to me as I was sort of working through some internal journey around yeah, self-exploration and understanding me. Uh, and that book was super helpful because it gave me like permission to ask questions about myself. And then it's either in that book or concomitantly, like at the same time, uh, I was having conversations with people that were familiar with the Enneagram, which is, uh, when I started to sort of explore what is this thing and how does it work? And probably the question everybody asks, what am I? So, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Well, listen, stay with us because when we come back, we will continue our conversation with Todd Ingstrom. We'll be right back.
2: Hey, this is Kirsten, the recruitment assistant at Love Thy Neighborhood. We recently asked some of our alumni how serving with us has impacted their lives.
1: My name is Silas McCord, and I am from Raleigh, North Carolina.
2: Silas served with us for a summer as a videography intern, and he shared one of the ways he experienced close Christian community during his service time.
1: The greatest part was just being able to be completely open and honest about Everything that was going on in our lives, and a lot of these guys are like very different from me. Just being able to see how relationships can still grow because of those differences has been really awesome to see that God is kind of ordaining all of those differences.
2: If you want a hands on experience of missions in our modern times, come serve with Love Thy Neighborhood. We offer internships for young adults ages 18 to 30 through the areas of service, community, and discipleship. You'll grow in your faith and life skills. Learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org.
0: Hey, welcome back to the Cast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And we are continuing our conversation with Todd Ingstrom. Todd, what do you find the most difficult when you think about uh, relating to God? And then what do you find to be maybe easier or more natural?
1: Yeah, I mean, you all mentioned, you know, uh, one of the upstream disciplines of journaling is a necessary thing for a one because journaling is the way of externalizing emotion and thought so you can interact with it. And when I think about, you know, kind of interacting with God, probably the greatest challenge for me is genuinely being honest about. Um, how I feel. Um, anger is, uh, is a core emotion, a core sin that a one feels. And the way we cope with the inner sense of anger is usually repression, right? So we don't want to have to feel anger. And so pouring out your anger to God when you're motivated by obedience and rightness, when you know the truth that there is nothing that God has done, that is unjust. There is not a single thing in redemptive history that he has done that is not unfair. But yet I feel this tension of anger at him for the injustice that I see. You don't know what to do with it. And so in particular, the expression of anger towards God is a real challenge for me. um, And I would dare say a challenge for many people who have the type one as their, um, as their type. And so, so yeah, I think learning to be comfortable with the fact that you are angry, but more than that is externalizing that anger, um, in, in a way that's honest and vulnerable, um, but, re- but not repressing in, um, you know, in a sense, not bringing that to the Lord is something I've had to learn and work on a lot and journaling mm-hmm. helps a ton.
0: Yeah. And Lamott says sometimes anger is how the truth escapes jail. You know, I'm thinking about like, a decade ago. I, I'm not a one, I have a lot of one though, and you know, I just had this utter meltdown where I found myself screaming, you know, God, this is why I'm mad at you. Mm-hmm. But I think that out of that moment there was this great healing that began to happen because it was honest, you know, it was honest and God could yeah. handle mm-hmm. that honesty. Other people, you know, I don't need to necessarily go around screaming at a bunch of other people, but I think God, you know, can handle it in ways that other folks can't. Mm-hmm.
2: So Todd, has there but a moment where you suspected that your personality was influencing your relationship with God or your particular theology? And what happened in that situation?
1: I would say that um, how I relate to God really does bring a sense of desire for obedience, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and and a frustration, you know, when either other people don't obey or I can't obey what I believe or perceive God's mandate or law particularly is. Um, and so when I think about you know like situations like that with others and myself, obedience is a thing that I want. And frustration, oftentimes, at the lack of obedience, is the normative experience of my day to day life with others and with God. I'm like God, why, <laughs> why can't somebody just very simply obey this basic command <laughs> right now? <laughs> you know, it's like that is a regular and routine uh, experience of life day to day for me. So when I think about, yeah, the, the struggles and the ways in which I uh, have difficulty relating to God, it's that routine frustration day in, day out for things that seem so simple and obvious. Uh, but again, it's missing the point that obedience is motivated fundamentally by joy, by worship, right? There's a internal affection that makes us want to do things there's certainly an external knowledge of the truth that helps us know what is right and true, but desires is at the core of every human being. And what I need to remember in the midst of those things is it's God who gives genuine desire for himself. God is the one who's going to provoke a desire for worship of Jesus. God is the one who's going to give the power of the Holy Spirit to a person to want to live in the way of Jesus, to desire to sacrificially love and serve. And so true motivation is sourced in joy, and joy overflows into sacrificial obedience, not the law. The law produces only, you know, condemnation and death, Um, but the Spirit, by God's grace, gives life and the ability to obey sincerely from the
0: heart.
2: Mm.
0: Are there certain either practices that you do or relationships in your life that help you try to sit in that joy and in the delight and in receiving love from God, you know, are there certain practices or people in your life that you really try to tap into to orient yourself more around that joy? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'll say it maybe in a couple of different ways. You know, one, in God's providence, uh, he gave me a wife who's an Enneagram seven. Oh, uh, yeah, there <laughs> so uh, and ones, you know, as they integrate towards health, tend to move towards a seven. And so in some sense, me actually living the joy-filled, you know, experiential life that God provides for us is uh, mandated by the fact I'm married to Olivia, and she loves to enjoy God's good gifts and God's experiences on this planet. So an act of discipline is honestly listening to my wife and receiving uh, her directions on how we should function as a married couple and as a family Mm. just saying hey let's go have some fun together (laughs) so i
2: love that
1: so i would say that's an active spiritual discipline for me that helps me remember you know again break out of the obedience and pursue joy yeah i think too you know gratitude is the antidote of grumbling And in many ways, just being consistently committed to the expression of thanksgiving, reminding myself that I'm thankful for God's good gifts, that I'm thankful for the circumstances that I'm a part of, that I'm thankful for the difficult people or the difficult circumstances I'm in. is just a basic kind of internal reflection and prayer for me often, God, thank you for the fact that I have this very difficult circumstance that I need to work through in my leadership. So Thanksgiving is a spiritual discipline that helps create an awareness of joy um, rather than actually producing it, but it creates an awareness of that's the appropriate response. Mm -hmm. I think maybe finally, it's recognizing that joy motivates and, and, and worship is what's at the heart of it. But I've also had to like reframe my core sin of anger or the manifestations of frustration towards something that's genuinely good, God-ordained, and biblical. And when I think about anger, when I think about frustration, when I think about the sincere, you know, kind of desire for right and wrong, the best word that I can think of is really encapsulated in Romans 12, you know, where Paul is talking about particularly the gifts being expressed in the body. And he says, let those lead, lead with zeal. Um, zeal is like that biblical God ordained, beautiful expression of the healthy side of a passion for rightness and justice. I want to be known as one who is zealous for the glory of the Lord, not angry about God's glory, not motivated or motivating people to obey but zealous for those things, that's kind of given me like a positive attachment of a word that's often perceived as negative, that helps me kind of orient. Joy isn't just about personal satisfaction, but joy expressed with rightness and truth is zeal. And I want to be zealous and I want people to know me as zealous. So I think about that a lot when it comes to battling yeah, myself and the ways in which I see the Lord and the ways in which I tend to unintentionally impact people.
0: That's so good. The idea of like, okay, I've got sort of this energy, it can go out in the wrong direction and become sort of this unhelpful anger, you know, or I can try to direct this energy in a way that's good and try to live a zealous life, you know, for the Lord, for other people, a life of meaning. I think that's wonderful.
2: So Todd, we talked about that each type has this key healing message that they long to hear what impact does it have on you when you imagine Jesus standing in front of you, looking at you and saying, you are good just as you are? What does that bring up for you?
1: You know, this is probably uh, something just in providence that i was thinking about yesterday i'm about to go on a sabbatical from ministry it actually starts uh basically i have 48 hours left (laughs) before i set down the weight of ministry and i was just thinking yesterday man what i most want to hear from people as i'm preparing to leave is just well done Mm -hmm. you know you know as you're even saying that there's an element for me that like that is what i most want to hear from people and from the lord and When I imagine myself, you know, in some sense in glory, beholding the face of my Lord. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Like that's the the most pleasing, the most satisfying and the thing that I most want in life. And so, yeah, even just imagining that moment moves me emotionally to be like, man, I can't wait. I can't wait to hear that and to hear it sincerely and truly like truthfully without any guile um, with the fullness of awareness of who I am before Jesus. I'm, I'm eager. It uh, also makes me a little bit like uh, happy, sad, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. I'm like, man, that would be great.
0: Yeah. The, your emotional reaction is very similar. You know, when I hear the message that I need to, it's sort of this, mm-hmm. it's this aching and this beautiful joy simultaneous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. One last question for you. How does practicing the virtue of patience shape your relationship with God and others? You know, when you approach life with a sense that God's plan is unfolding and I can tolerate imperfections because he's at work, he's going to take care of everything. When you take that patient approach, how does that shape your relationship with God and other people?
1: You know, I think about practicing patience as a one um, it's probably attached to how we manage emotion as well. You know? And again, if, if anger is the core thing that we often feel and we repress it or restrain it, we're pretty practiced at being um, patient with our own internal emotions. And therefore, practicing patience with external things that drive us crazy um, should be a thing that we're capable of doing. And uh, I think the probably more important thing about practicing patience for a one is being patient with one's self but in the midst of patience realizing there's something better that we must seek rather than just restraint it's an active pursuit of joy uh, what what a one needs and what i need is not so much to restrain you know my own responses to external circumstances that frustrate me but it's to, again to practice the discipline patiently waiting with actual joy and thanksgiving so Mm. think about how it shapes my view of god Um, in many ways if i'm not practicing patience with a discipline towards joy or thanksgiving i only see god as a person who is expecting things from me but not actually giving me good gifts and so again only orienting towards patience means that we can still experience god in a negative way we have to think about patience with joy or with thanksgiving because that puts us in a disposition to receive from God, not only his expectations, but his pleasure. In terms of patience with other people, this is probably the greatest struggle that most Enneagram ones and I myself have. So how to be patient with a person is probably the greater battle and it's the way that people experience us most. One of the ways in which that I have sought to articulate so I'm both known and vulnerable is to not restrain frustration, but to just simply say, "In patience, I am frustrated. Mm. I know I need the grace of God, but I need you to know that I am frustrated right now." I use this uh, with my wife last week. You know, we had our uh, suburban breakdown. We had to fix a transmission, and I was furious. Like internally, she knows, like Todd is so mad right now. But what she needs to hear is he's not mad at me. He's just frustrated that our transmission blew out on our suburban and we have to go fix it, you know? And so I just have to, in patience, remind myself like, okay, this is going to be fine. But also with the discipline of patience saying, I need to communicate so I'm known and trusted and loved that I am frustrated, not with my wife, but with the circumstances we have. So so again, um, patience is important, but expression of vulnerability um, around the state that you're actually in coupled with patients is how you can be known, cared for, and loved in the midst of the battle that an Enneagram one faces in relationship. Mm,
0: that's good. That's good. Well, you know, there's nothing quite better than hanging out with a one while they have fun. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do. Stay with us because when we come back, we will be playing your worst nightmare with Todd Ingstrom. We'll be right back at LTN, we believe that in order to be loved, you must be known. And part of being known means understanding who you are, which is why we created Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Mapping Your Enneagram Story is a workbook to help you map your life story and understand who you are. Using the lens of the Enneagram, you'll explore how the story you've lived has made you into who you are and why Jesus is the key to living a better story. To get your own copy of Mapping Your Enneagram Story, just go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click the Store link at the top of the menu. There, you'll find Mapping Your Enneagram Story plus all our other Enneagram content. And all proceeds go directly to support Love Thy Neighborhood. So go to lovethyneighborhood.org and click Store. Mapping Your Enneagram Story. Find the clarity you need to have meaningful, long-lasting relationships. Welcome back to the IndieCast, Jesse Eubanks. Lindsay Lewis. And now it's time for Your Worst Nightmare. Okay, so Your Worst Nightmare. It is a real game. You can actually find it on Amazon or head over to pressmantoy.com. Okay, Todd, here's how the game works. Each round, we are going to read off four different items to you you are then going to rank those four things by how afraid of them you are. Number one, being the thing that you are the most afraid of, all the way down to number four, being the thing that you are least afraid of. Uh, You're gonna write your answers down. At the same time, Lindsay and I are each going to rank the order in which we believe that you are afraid of those things. For every single one that Lindsay or I get correct, meaning that we ranked it correctly, we get a point. If we get all four correct, we actually get five points. We're gonna play three rounds. And at the end of the game, if one of us has nine points or more, then we win. But (laughs) if we have less than nine points, then Todd, you win. Are you both ready? Yep.
1: Ready to rock and
0: roll. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Lindsay, I will let you go with round one.
2: Okay, round one. Here are your four things. Economic collapse, gossip, getting stuck in elevators and mummies.
1: All right. I got it.
0: Okay. Okay. Lindsay, do you want to go first? Sure. All
2: right. I put number one gossip because gossip in the big church with multi-sites for a pastor can be really, really bad. Two economic collapse, three elevators, Four mummies.
0: Lindsay Lewis, we gave the exact same
2: no, order and answers. Crazy.
0: Yeah. So, all right, Todd, tell us your worst nightmares.
1: Time for the big reveal. You guys were both 100% correct. <gasps> so, awesome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we each get- Economic collapse, getting stuck in elevators and mummies. You nailed it. So, for the record, mummies aren't real. So, you can't
2: be exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, that was my exact thought.
0: Uh, uh, that's so funny because I thought he he ain't going for mummies. He's not yep. scared of mummies. He's, so. <laughs> He's got real
2: things to think about. He's got, He's got real three, stuff. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, well let's let's make things a little more complicated in round two. Round two: being late, drinking out of other people's glasses, toilets overflowing, and clowns. This one is way harder being late, drinking out of other people's glasses, toilets overflowing, and clowns. Can we say clowns aren't real also? Is that an option?
2: Well, they are real.
0: They're but
1: not. Yeah, actually, I need to recant my statement on mummies aren't real. They are real. They exist. Scary mummies are not a real thing, yeah. you know? Yeah.
0: So. Okay, I'll go first this time. So here's my okay. ranking. I think that he is most afraid of overflowing toilets. Number two, lightness. Number three, drinking out of other people's glasses. And finally, number four, clowns.
2: Oh my gosh. I have the exact same. What? I know. What?
0: Oh man. Okay. Todd, what is your worst nightmare?
1: So it's interesting because I don't know if this is genuinely true or if I'm just trying to now beat you guys in your own (laughs) game, but... (laughs) Number one is clowns. I despise clowns, despise (laughs) them. So they terrify me to no end uh, because they are real things that are creepy and I have no idea what to do with them. So. Number two is true to my personality; being late for sure uh, terrifies me. Um, number three is actually toilets overflowing, uh, and that's because I have five kids. Yep. So uh, you know, the toilet overflowing is actually a nightmare around my house. Uh, and then finally, drinking from other people's glasses doesn't bother me one bit. Probably because I have five. kids. That's
2: exactly so. what I was thinking. Is like he has five uh, kids, just yeah. fine drinking out of other people's glasses,
0: yeah, <laughs> or then drinking out of Island. his
2: glass, whether he likes it or not.
0: <laughs> right, <laughs> it's like my kids. Uh, Okay, Lindsay and I both have six points. So far, Todd is still in the lead. Okay, round three, Lindsay. Read them off.
2: Okay, round three. Ridicule, losing, getting tickled, and eating expired food. I think this one is pretty tricky.
0: I think so, too. You and I may not line up on yeah, this
2: one. I'm not even sure I line up with myself on this one.
0: <laughs> okay, Lindsay, go.
2: Oh, gosh. Okay, I'm going to put... You know what? I'm just going to keep it in its order. I'm going to say ridicule, losing, getting tickled, eating expired food. Oh,
0: my gosh. That's the same order I put things in. <laughs> that's
2: so weird. We never agree.
0: Stop being boring. We have to <laughs> come up with better things.
2: You can change it. I went first.
0: Um, okay. You know what? I am going to. I'm going to switch uh, tickled and food. So I'm going to go okay. ridicule, uh, losing, expired food, getting tickled. Todd, what is your worst nightmare?
1: Uh, see, these are ones that are hard because you have to know me to know why I would order these mm-hmm. in this way. But my number one worst nightmare is getting tickled. So oh, I am, my yes, I'm extremely ticklish. Uh, my stepsister growing up used to pin me on my back and just tickle me and torture me with it. Oh, so it is dang. genuinely worst nightmare kind of territory for me. So number two is losing. Uh number three is eating expired food, and number four is ridicule. So
2: oh, I got I one, one.
0: And I got two. So here's what that means. It he means wins. that Todd has won. Yep. And it also means wow. that I still beat Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: by one point. Uh,
0: by one point. Hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. So Todd, congratulations on uh winning your worst nightmare. Uh,
1: it's, uh, I'm not sure if that's a joy or you know something I should be sad about. <laughs> yeah, I morning. don't
0: know. <laughs> uh, all right, and now it's time for 11 quick questions. So, Todd, we are going to ask you 11 questions. You can answer with one word, one phrase, or one sentence. Okay, so
2: Lindsay. Number one, what is a word you use too much?
1: Does that make sense?
2: Ah, I say that a lot too.
0: What is a word or phrase that you wish you never had to say again?
1: Stop it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Three, what makes you feel alive?
0: Skiing. Hmm. What repels you? Insecurity.
2: (laughs) What is your favorite emotion?
0: Mm,
1: this is a tough one. Uh, it's it's laughter, but it's the mm. laughter that comes, you know, from extreme excitement, deep knowing that you're doubled over with somebody that you love the most. So, yeah, I don't know how to say that in a single emotion, but that's the one.
0: Mm. Love it. What is your least favorite emotion?
1: Well, anger, obviously. <laughs>
2: <laughs> What is a sound or noise that you love?
1: The giggling of my youngest daughter, Lucy.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: What's a sound or a noise that you hate?
1: The complaining of my third son, Owen. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: If you could switch Enneagram types for a day, which one would you like to try?
1: Oh, a seven for certain.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, me too. If you could tell your teenage self One sentence, what would it be?
1: Stop wearing corduroy pants.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They're back. Uh, They're in.
0: Ah, That's great.
2: (laughs) Okay. All right. Our final question is a little serious. What would you like to say to God when you meet him face to face?
1: Genuinely, thank you. Uh, thank you for saving me. Thank you for allowing me to serve you. Thank you for your redeeming love and thank you for being with you forever.
0: Mm. Well, Todd, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. We we just want to say we appreciate who you are. We appreciate what you're bringing to this world, to the Austin Stone, to your community in Texas, to your family. Um, uh, yeah, we the world needs more folks like you. So thanks so much for joining us and uh, and, sh- and being vulnerable and sharing so much.
1: Thank you guys for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: If you benefited at all from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Your review will help other people discover our show. Special thanks to our guest today, Todd Engstrom. Listen, if you would like to learn more about Todd's work, about the ministry of the Austin Stone and all the different amazing endeavors they're doing related to missions, you can head over to austinstone.org. Also, special thanks to Crosspoint Ministry, who helped train us in the Enneagram. You can check them out at crosspointministry.com.
2: This show is brought to you by Love Thy Neighborhood. We provide internships focused on service, community and discipleship for young adults ages 18 to 30 serve for a summer or a year and grow in your faith and life skills you can learn more at lovethyneighborhood.org
0: this episode was written by Lindsay lewis and myself anna tran is our media director and producer music for today's episode comes from lee rosevere murphy dx i'm Lindsay lewis and i'm jesse eubanks remember the eye can see everything but itself find people to journey with you because you were created for community